Thanks, Dave. Good morning, everybody. Happy Independence Day. Uh, it's unique that we get to gather together on a national holiday, but I am glad, I'm happy uh, that we're here together. And, you know, I'm more happy, I guess, that it's 9 a.m. so we can all go enjoy the parade after the service. Uh, hopefully you have your spots staked out already. As a brand new Wheaton resident, about two weeks now, I have already learned that if you didn't get seats, like this is a Chick-fil-A grand opening, you are going to be standing far in the back as the parade rolls by. Uh, if you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Grant Armstrong, one of the pastors on staff, and I'm glad you're here. Everybody else would consider themselves a regular, I am glad you're here as well. I love when I get the chance to preach because it's become a joy-filled experience for me. Now, part of the reason I enjoy it so much is because it's a nice excuse to pause from my normal pastoral duties, and I get to spend a little extra time studying what people believe is true of God. Now, I recently started asking myself the question, how much theology does a person need to have correct to be considered a Christian? What level of doctrinal accuracy is needed for people to be part of the, the church, that is, those who believe in Jesus? It's an interesting dilemma because right now in the United States and around the world, there are people who claim to be Christians and believe and do all kinds of things that are different than what I believe and how I act. So how much of this stuff do we need to get right to be a Christian? That question's helped reveal to me what I hold as central and what's maybe more on the fringe of my theological framework. Now, essentially, I've been asking what level of orthodoxy, ortho means right or correct, and doxy meaning belief. So how much correct belief does one need to be saved? That's led to the second, second question, how much orthopraxy? Again, ortho meaning right, praxy as uh, praxis or behavior. So how much correct behavior does one need to have to be saved? I first asked these questions as I was sorting through certain types of people that I've encountered, individuals who have lifestyles and ideas that don't quite seem to match up with what I often perceive as normal for Christians. And these questions have been important because what I know of the human condition, and especially of those who call themselves Christians, is we easily make saving faith equal to the gospel plus something. Whatever qualifies a person to be saved by Jesus, we tend to add a few of our own conditions, our favorites or our passion points. Whether that be abstinence from certain behaviors or beliefs, or maybe it's participation in certain behaviors and beliefs. We have this tendency left unchecked to want to qualify ourselves and others into saving faith. We can't, or at least I can't, seem to get away from trying to earn just a little bit of the grace that Jesus offers. Now this morning, as we spend time together, we're going to wrestle with those questions. We're going to look at one of the most prolific authors in the New Testament, what he had to say about these realities. So if you consider yourself a Christian, this is relevant for you. If you say you're a Christian, that means at a minimum, you'd like to receive the benefits or the outcomes of being a Christian, most notably eternity with God. 
Now, to make sure that happens, you'd probably want to make sure that you've checked the right boxes for sufficient orthodoxy and orthopraxy, those right beliefs and right practices. You want to cross that minimum threshold, I think. And if you're not a Christian, whether you're antagonistic or you're unsure or maybe you just don't care, I think you want to know the answers to these questions because this is going to help you filter through the messages that you hear from people who claim to represent Jesus in Christianity. Now, if you're going to opt out of Christianity, I think you should want to opt out of authentic Christianity and not just a poor representation of it. I'll give you an example here. I, and I'll apologize up front, this is going to be controversial. I used to think that Disney World was probably super lame. And more lame than that was being a parent at Disney World. That was the kind of epitome of uh, what I did not want to do with my life. So I was a little bit of a hater. And I know there's sold out Disney fans out here. Apologize to the Oxes. Uh, <laughs> I just, I couldn't understand the draw. But that was my perception. And a couple years back, actually I guess it was right before COVID, my wife convinced me that we should take our boys, we should go do the Disney thing. So I did, and to be fair, reality and my perception, they weren't miles apart, but my perception of Disney wasn't quite accurate. Now, I could do without the crowds and the sweating and spending $25 for a lemonade, but the wonder and awe that my family experienced was amazing. You see, when I was originally saying no to Disney, I wasn't saying no to the real thing, just what I had heard about it. And that was very different than the real experience. Now, my point is, if you're going to opt out of Christianity, let's at least opt out of the real thing and not some person's false or mischaracterized version. And here's a secret that maybe you haven't heard many people say. There are a bunch of messages about Christianity and experiences claiming to be Christian that I would opt out of too. I wouldn't want to adhere to those claims either. But they're not all accurate. And this morning, I'm going to help you, or at least try to help you, think about what's accurate and what's just an attempt to be Christianity and might fall short of the real thing. So when I was in seminary, I took a class with a leading New Testament scholar. And he asked this room of 30 future pastors and ministers to write down the gospel in a single sentence. Do you know what was shocking? Every one of us wrote down a different answer. Every single one had a different representation. Based on our own experiences, we articulated different facets of what we thought of Christianity. Now, for some, the variety of answers was a little bit unsettling. But for me, it was this fascinating experience. And ever since, I've frequently tried to summarize the gospel and think about how others might share their understanding of the gospel in one sentence. Most recently, I was reading an essay about the basis or the philosophical basis of ethics in the United States. Quoted in the essay was this really smart man, way smarter than me. He did a fantastic job of writing out the gospel in one sentence. He said this, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not, in any meaningful sense, a Christian. Do you agree with those sentiments? 
I think he nails it. Christianity, at the most basic level, says that Jesus, a real man, from a real time period in history, was simultaneously God and man, and he died as a sacrifice for the sins of the world to be forgiven and rose three days after his death. Now, Paul, the author that we'll study from this morning, he says something similar in a little bit different letter. In 1 Corinthians 15, he puts it this way, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared. That's Paul's definition of the gospel. Now, there's quite a bit of agreement between those two sentences. So I'd say the first summary is pretty good. In fact, I've kind of adopted that sentiment for the time being as my own definition of the gospel. But here's what's so striking to me about that summary. It came from a man who was an ardent atheist. Not only did he not believe in God, he was actively opposed to society, even maintaining the idea of God. He thought the effects of religion were so disastrous that we should stop permitting people to believe in these fairy tales. He wrote books and debated and called out people, even when they were doing good things in the name of religion, because he disagreed so strongly with the concept. The late Christopher Hitchens, the man who spoke the gospel summary so succinctly, was a brilliant thinker and understood the message of Jesus plainly. He articulated more clearly than most Christians what the New Testament states. But despite his accurate representation of the Christian message, he chose to reject the idea and was opposed in every way to what it represented. Now, Hitchens' belief and his life actions, they dovetail nicely with the ideas that Paul the Apostle, the writer of Colossians, addresses in the section of the letter we'll look at this morning. And your lyric sheets actually have the scripture printed on there. It's included on the backside. Uh, this comes from a different translation than we normally use. Typically, we operate out of the NIV. This morning, I'm going to read from the Net Bible. Um, it's different, but it helps highlight the nuance a little bit easier. So if you're reading from your own Bible, that might sound a little bit different than what I read, uh, but it is on your lyric sheet. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, And you are at one time strangers and enemies in your mind as expressed through your evil deeds. But now he's reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy, without blemish and blameless before him, that is God. If indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm, without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become its servant. Now, it's amazing to me that people like Paul can say so much in three short sentences. It's going to take me like 25 minutes this morning to say what Paul did in 30 seconds. But as we unpack what Paul is saying, I don't want the point of the passage to be overlooked. I don't want it to be lost on us in the midst of my attempt at explaining it. Paul gives the people at the church in Colossae a message that remains as true and relevant today as it was back in 50, 60 AD. Now, essentially, my translation of this for modern day would say, in light of how significant the work that Jesus accomplished against all odds rescuing you while you resisted him, it would serve you well to live a life of gratitude expressed by behavior that aligns with God's planned order for the world. And when that becomes challenging, you can be encouraged that through Jesus' actions that day on the cross, 
you actually possess inside of you what is necessary to continue on that path. Now, I considered ending the sermon right there, saying, hey, let's just go to the parade. I feel like that's powerful stuff. So I am going to read it one more time. In light of how significant the work that Jesus accomplished against all odds, because you lived opposing God, he rescued you while you resisted him. It would serve you well to live a life of gratitude to him that is demonstrated by behavior that is patterned after God's planned order for the world. And when that becomes challenging, as it surely will, you can be encouraged that through Jesus' actions, you actually possess inside of you all that is necessary to continue on the path of faith. But how do we know? And how does that connect back to my goal of helping us know about right belief and right behavior? Last week, Pastor John worked through the previous section of this letter, and verse 20 tells us that through Christ's death on the cross, he is making peace between all of creation and God, reconciliation. Now, I would argue that this is kind of a law of natural order, just like gravity is. This is a true reality independent of what we do or don't do. And that's how Paul presents it. Christ's death was for reconciliation, that peacemaking And verse 21, where we started this morning, that highlights why Jesus needs to reconcile humans and creation to God. He targets the people that make up the Colossian church, but the problem isn't reserved to only them. And you are at one time strangers and enemies in your mind as expressed through your evil deeds. Now, if you consider yourself a Christian, you may remember a time in your life that you actively opposed God. For some, that was your days before you were a Christian. You can remember the way you were living and at some point became aware that you needed Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Others of us, other Christians, might not remember much of life before Christ. But even in your Christian walk, you can remember times that you've said no to Jesus. Now, I've said this before, but I think every person is regularly saying yes or no to Jesus. And when we say yes, we bend our hearts and our postures towards submission to him. And when we say no, we bend our hearts and our posture away from him in rebellion. We're always either moving closer to or further away from the peace with God. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, the idea of your own sin or living as an enemy of God may sound foreign or distasteful to you. And and I understand that sentiment. We don't often think of ourselves as enemies of God. That sounds a bit extreme, but I'm confident you would say this world is not ideal. There are tragedies and injustices present all over. It only takes about 30 seconds of watching any news channel or scrolling through Instagram to see something is out of order. That's a result of people, all of us, myself included, opposing God's intended plan for the world that would lead to human flourishing, lead to people treated equitably, peace, and justice. And while owning the idea of a personal sin or acting as an enemy of God may feel over the top when it's directed squarely at us, we're often quick to identify it in others. And the truth is, if we actually want the world to look different than it does now, if we actually want things to be right-ordered and peace-filled and equitable, we all have to own that we've played a role in it being broken, however small that role is. Our sin has affected people around us. Our response to God often begins in our minds. When we acknowledge that things are out of order, that the world is not as it should be, pain and suffering, injustice, that these are a result of our collective sin. Our actions of saying no to God when we lie, 
or when we manipulate, when we coerce, when we abuse power, when we steal, when we spread rumors, when we cheat, we drink too much, we work too much, when we ignore those in need, when we harbor bitterness, all of those things lead to brokenness and consequences in the world. We're enemies and alienated because we are living out the broken system. We are breaking the system. Now, our wrong thinking about ourselves and God has led us to wrong actions. One theologian expresses it this way. Wrong thinking leads to vice, vice to further mental corruption so that the mind, still not totally ignorant of God's standards, finds itself applauding evil. Now, I hope you don't confuse or mishear me. I'm not trying to stand up here to point a finger at you only. I'm guilty of these things as well. I'm trying to describe the problem of the situation that we all find ourselves in. Our actions and our sin are expressions of our enmity towards God. But in all sincerity, thank God that that's not the end of this letter. Thank God that it's not the end of the story. Paul goes on to contrast that past reality with the present. Verse 22 expresses the application of Christ's death to the problem of our sin. He contrasts by saying, but now, as compared to your past lives, Jesus has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before God. That's the whole point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There is cosmic activity to right what is wrong. If you remember, and I'm going to borrow this phrasing, but if you remember the story of creation, before there was original sin, there was original good. God, as the creator, he loves this world and wants to see things righted. He originally made the world good, and after humanity participated in sin and brought its consequences, God has been on a rescue mission ever since. Paul uses the language, you were once, but now, not to shame readers or listeners because of their past life. Instead, he's drawing an emphasis to the enormity of what was done for the Colossian church specifically. That rescue mission, he wants to encourage them to continue in their response of thanksgiving to God by carrying on firmly in the hope that is the gospel. So if that first verse sounds bleak, being an enemy to God, verse 22 offers us immense hope. Despite our destruction and sin, Jesus, independent of us, went to the cross and died so that all of us, the whole world, had the opportunity to make peace with God the Father. In his explanation, Paul seems to incorporate two types of metaphors. He tells Christians because of Jesus' physical death, they are presented holy and blameless without blemish. Now, the first metaphor, holy and blameless, these are legal terms alluding to the judgment that every person will one day face at Christ's second coming. As each person stands before God and gives account of their life, those who cling firmly to the truth of Jesus will be seen as debt-free, guilt-free by God. And that language of without blemish recalls the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, Animals, before they were sacrificed for sins, needed to be evaluated for imperfections to see if they qualified as a sacrifice. So this legal and sacrificial system are both facets of what happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Paul is affirming to the church that Christ's death has accomplished something real. There are real outcomes from a real death that make a real difference in the physical world. 
God's actions and the Colossians' acceptance of the gospel don't instantly equate to perfect, perfection, though. We all know this. Instead, Christians are given a new life, the new birth, and they must behave in accordance with this new life. They, we, need to put aside the ways that we acted in our past, that lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, and live aligned to the repatterning of the world. Now, I'll try to thread a needle here because verse 23 can sometimes be misunderstood or misrepresented as the need to earn salvation. Paul actually writes verse 23 as part of a conditional clause, an if-then statement. To understand what he's saying, we could readjust uh, the sentences and read it this way. If indeed you remain in the faith, established and firm without shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, then he has reconciled you by his physical body through death to present you holy without blemish and blameless before God. Now in the early stages of response, genuine and counterfeit faith can be very hard to distinguish from one another. Many of us have seen this before. Maybe it's a friend or a child who responds to a gospel message they hear and there's an eagerness. It's hard to tell, will this play out over time? But we can get caught in the trap of trying to evaluate whether or not another person has genuine faith. We might say or think things like, well, if they were a Christian, they wouldn't be living that way. How could a Christian move in with his girlfriend? How could a Christian support that person? The trap is for us to use certain behaviors or beliefs or lifestyles as the litmus test for the genuine nature of somebody's faith. But it doesn't quite work like that. Paul tells us this. Faith is displayed over time in the long run. Now, this can be both unsettling and encouraging. Because if we look at somebody's life at one single point, they may, be, they may appear to be holding firm to their faith in the gospel. They may seem passionate and eager to grow in their relationship with Jesus. But maybe that plays out over a decade. And then they go to college or they graduate and life happens. They just seem to have drifted. They don't even believe this stuff anymore. That can be disturbing. It seems so real, and that's a hard spot to be in. I think most of us probably have a family member or a dear friend we can think of that fits into this category. It causes us to stress. I have family in this category, and my heart aches for them. But I'm encouraged because God takes a much larger view than I do. He's looking at faith played out over a lifetime, 20, 30, 50, 70 years Zoomed in, those valleys and mountaintop moments, they might look extreme. But if we zoom out for a life, they might maybe much smaller. We see God continuing to work in people's lives despite where they're at in their own faith today. But this also calls us to something. Praying a prayer once at church camp or when you felt moved at a funeral isn't what Jesus is asking of people. The gospel is a message of God rescuing you from yourself, but it's not a few magic words that just get you out of jail. A person changed by the gospel, a person who has put their hope in the gospel of Jesus can't help but have a changed life. You don't have to be perfect, I'm not perfect, but we must be submitting ourselves to the commands of Jesus. When we reflect on our own life, we should see evidence of saying yes to God, even when we want to say no. We should see that we're growing and maturing, that we have increasing levels of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. 
those are inevitable outcomes of a life that's been reconciled to God. Now, they won't all be present all the time, but played out over time, you should see these elements in your life. My caution to all of us is not to follow the temptation to make judgments about these realities in another person's life. God is far more patient in these working out than you or me. A person who continues to desire to be part of the community of God, regardless of where their current beliefs or behaviors land, should be invited in. Now, we can certainly have agreed upon standards for behavior so we don't harm our community, but these things are not the equivalent to our salvation. Now, we know this because that promise is available to everybody. And Paul says this gospel has also been preached in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become its servant. Paul knows that when he wrote this, not every person had heard about Jesus. And that's still true today. There are people who have never heard the story of Christ. So what can that mean? It means that the scope of the gospel is all-reaching for all creation is being proclaimed as a promise to all creation. The reconciling work of Jesus isn't limited to a specific people or a specific place. His sacrifice is effective for anybody who believes in the gospel message, who says yes to Jesus. And Paul, he's become an ambassador of this message, traveling around to make sure that as many people as possible hear that promise. Implicitly here, explicitly in other letters, Paul invites us to become ambassadors of that gospel too, through our own lives and through our own messages. So how much of this stuff do you need to get right to be a Christian? Well, it seems like the bar is kind of low. You need to place hope of your life in the sufficiency of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to make peace between you and God. And I'm grateful for that. Because the reality is I'm powerless to overcome the burden of my sin. I have wronged people in ways that I can't possibly right. Debts that could never be repaid. And if I had to earn parts of what would save me, I don't think I'd make it. And the hope of the gospel is that I, that we don't have to. We cling to the reality, the truth, that the only thing that can possibly save us It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And here's part of the beauty of the message. Jesus isn't only concerned with where we spend eternity. While spending eternity in the new heavens and new earth with Jesus will certainly be wonderful, Jesus wants to fix what is broken in your life now. God calls all of us through invitations and commands to certain habits and beliefs and practices and ways of living. If you're following God, the way you live will change over time. This is the evidence that you've placed your hope in that reality. The behaviors, the changes, they're not conditions of your salvation. They're evidence of it. Because the same Jesus who lived a perfect life and offers to make peace between you and God, he sent the Holy Spirit to give you what you need to hold on to your faith when you feel challenged, when life beats you up, when you feel doubt, when you fail When you sin, when you misunderstand, God is with you and is empowering you to cling to his saving grace. And that's why we can remain firm and steadfast in our faith, played out over a lifetime. God is the one working to rescue us, and he does not fail. Now this morning, if you find yourself wanting to have that kind of faith, if you want to be rescued 
Give voice to what your heart is longing for. That desire is God working in you, working to save you. I would encourage you, don't miss the moment to ask God to rescue you, to admit your sin and your opposition to God and your need for forgiveness. Ask him to change your life, to change your heart, to equip you to remain firm in your faith to the gospel work of Jesus. If you have a loved one whose life looks to have abandoned the hope of the gospel, I'd suggest begin by praying for them diligently, specifically that they would have clarity around the gospel, that they would cling to that hope only. Without challenging their behaviors yet, if you've built up trust and love with that person, ask them if they understand what's at the core of the gospel. Make sure they're not opting out of some kind of false Christianity. Now, I'll be honest, communities that do this well can look a little messy because people on the outside will wonder, what kind of church are, are you? How can people who live like that go to church there? How can people who have that lifestyle feel at home in that church if they're real Christians? But if these communities are ones, but these types of communities, excuse me, are ones with rich testimony of the power of God played out over lifetimes, they aren't groups of people who just polished the exterior lives to look good. They did the hard work of letting their inner worlds be healed and changed. They stuck it out together through the painful process of dying to themselves and their own desires and some of their longings. They let God work in them and repattern them to his intended order. And they were patient with one another in the process. That is a true Christian community. That's one that has clung to the hope of the true gospel. So let's live that way so that we don't misrepresent the gospel, so that we don't encourage people to opt out of something that Jesus wasn't inviting them to. Let's be people who embrace the hope of the gospel and live lives that are deeply changed. Amen? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your promise to save us, to make peace between us and God independent of what we do. God, I pray in our hearts that we would accept the reality there is nothing we can offer that could bring about salvation. And at the same time, Jesus, I pray that you wouldn't leave us in that spot, that you would draw us into maturity, that we would experience increasing levels of joy because we choose to follow the commands that are outlined in Scripture. Jesus, help us to grow in trust of you, that you want what's good for us, that when you ask us to let down things that feel so central to our identity, that we believe we can trust you with those items. God, I pray that we would be a community that looks maybe different than what folks would expect, that represents people all along the spectrum on the faith journey, but together we would be pursuing you, lifting up your name, and proclaiming the hope that is the gospel, that it is only through your life, death, and resurrection that any of us are saved. Thank you for those promises. Jesus, we love you. We are grateful for you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.